So we have come to Hosea chapter 4. We've been preaching through since September. Uh, We're not that far into the book, really. It's got uh, a lot more chapters, but this is uh, a place where the the book kind of shifts. It kind of marks a new section. Uh, Up to this point, Hosea's really been about Hosea and Gomer, right? The, uh, The prophet of God called to Mary, an unfaithful woman, and all the things that have happened in there. Uh, last week, we saw the redemption of Gomer, and, and we would kind of want to know what happens next, uh, but the truth of the matter is we, we don't get the rest of the story. Uh, so we'll have to wait till heaven or whenever we see them and ask them how it went, uh, hope that they lived happily ever after. Uh, but while their relationship is kind of no longer the focus of the book, uh, the, me- the meaning of the message, the meaning of their relationship still is the focus. Uh, the whole point was that uh, God's prophet would marry an unfaithful woman and demonstrate you know, what it looks like to love someone that way because that's how God loves us in our unfaithfulness and that's going to continue. Uh, the only difference is that instead of, instead of God speaking kind of through the, the whole relationship, like as a picture, kind of like a, a living parable, now he's going to speak directly through his prophet Isaiah, just like he does through, through, uh, through Isaiah. Did I say Isaiah? Isaiah, Hosea, they rhyme, sort of. Um, He's going to speak in the way that he's spoken many times before, right? Through Ezekiel, uh, there's, there's a man on the ground saying, thus saith the Lord, speaking on behalf of God. And you need to know that the words that we're going to hear in the following chapters uh, are not really light and fluffy words. Uh, not many of the prophets, frankly, are light and fluffy. Uh, we're going to follow Hosea as he takes us into some deep dives into the reality of sin, into the fallout that comes from abandoning God. We will come back up to the surface to, to, to bask in the grace and mercy of God. Certainly that is then. But primarily, uh, this book is about the reality uh, and the consequences of sin. Now, you might be thinking, if you've been with us since September, you might be thinking, I thought that's what we were already doing. Because <laughs> there's already been a lot of talk in the book of Hosea uh, about sin. Uh, you might think, you know, I, I think I get the purpose, like the main message of the book, I think I get it. Okay, we're unfaithful, God is faithful. Uh, We are wretched sinners. He is full of grace. Uh, We are idolaters. He is perfect in love. We desperately need Jesus. I I think I get it. Why do we need to keep focusing on sin like over and over and over again? And the short answer is because God focuses on sin over and over and over again. And so if, if we were to do something different, and we could, right? We could just kind of pick and choose the passages we want each Sunday, Try to have a nice mix, right? Nice little hard passage, then a nice soft one and kind of make us all feel good. But that, that would be editing uh, the Word of God. Uh, that would be filtering kind of these, these books of the Bible through what we think we need. And the, the truth of the matter is we're not really great about figuring out what we actually need. So what we find in the Bible is God's Word as He reveals it. And uh, what we see in the Bible is that those who teach faithfully, they they give it all. So, for example, Paul, in speaking to the Ephesian church, he says this to them in Acts 20, 27. He's, he's going to leave them. Uh, but he says, For I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. He's saying, I give you everything. Everything that you needed. Hard and soft. Uh, because he loved them. Because he knew they needed the whole thing. Not selections from God's counsel, but the whole thing. And the same thing is true of us. We don't need parts of Scripture We need the whole thing in the way that God has delivered it to us. And frankly, we don't need a lot more soft words. Soft words tend to result in a a soft people. We need strong words. 
Uh, we need sharp words at times. To, to chisel away at the hardness of our hearts so that we would actually be shaped into the image of Christ. So that we would experience the transforming power of God in our lives. So that's exactly what we find in the book of Hosea. And so that's what we're going to dive into yet again today. Uh, we're doing verses 1 to 9, but we're going to start with verses 1 to 3. So here's the beginning of God's word to us this morning. This is God speaking to his people. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. So we'll stop there uh, for now. We just have two points today, and both of them have to do with the impact uh, of abandoning God. What happens to a people, and then the second point is going to have to do with what happens to a leadership when they, when they abandon God. So here's our first point. Uh, without a heart for God, human beings languish. Languish. We're going to see this language in the text of just, just decaying and falling apart. Uh, if you have a Bible... Uh, in front of you, you might notice that there is kind of a, a subheading uh, for this section, just above the, the first uh, verse of the chapter. Uh, these, these headings are not, the, like they're not given by God, they were added later, so they're not divinely inspired, but sometimes they're helpful. So this one in my Bible says, the Lord accuses Israel. That's this section, God accusing Israel. Now accusations, uh, we kind of know that they're not a casual thing that you do. Like if someone, if you want to talk to someone about something that, you know, you think is wrong in their lives, um, if you're accusing them, you're not gently, casually mentioning something that they should maybe pay attention to. If you're accusing them, you're, you're confronting them. You're coming right at them with this thing and probably you're doing it because you know that, that they don't see it. Maybe they don't want to see it, but that they, they need to see it. This is this is the right application of, like, when we use accusations rightly, it's usually in this, this context. Uh, one example, kind of a famous accusation, uh, one of the uh, most famous newspaper headlines, uh, probably ever, comes from a French paper. In 1898, uh, this headline was published by L'Aurore paper in Paris, and it just says, J'accuse, which in French is, uh, I accuse you. Maybe that was obvious, but that's the translation, right? And it was written by this man, Emile Zola, who I thought it was important we saw his picture because, man, he does not look happy. Can you imagine being accused by him? It's very intense. But this article was important. Uh, it was his accusation against the French government about the false imprisonment of a French military officer. He was writing to the president and to the government at large. This officer, his name was Dreyfus, he was, he was convicted of being a spy. But the the evidence for his conviction was very, very weak. And the real issue, according to Zola, and for many at the time, was that the officer was Jewish. And so this article was him uh, confronting the entire government about their anti-Jewish attitudes and the anti-Jewish sentiment that was growing in France at the time. It wasn't something that the government leaders wanted to hear, but it was something they needed to hear. This is the same sense that we get from our text today. God is accusing Israel over areas of sin that they don't see clearly, they don't want to see it clearly, but they need to see it clearly. And that's what we get in verse one. 
Verse one again, God says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. That word controversy is basically him saying, look, God has a beef with you. There's an issue that you need to attend to. God has a problem with you. And so what are the accusations? What are the problems that God lists? First, he gives a list of the key things that are missing from Israel uh, in an internal way, right? Uh, No faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God. These are all internal qualities. Then when you take them together, it gives the impression they're very hard-hearted. Like they, they don't have a heart for God. If, if there was a husband and you knew this about him, that he was interacting with his wife in this way, that he, that he was not loyal, uh, that he wasn't tender towards her, that he wasn't really even interested in knowing her, you would, you would conclude that you know, his heart is very hard. Something, something's going on. He has a cold heart towards his wife. And you probably wouldn't be surprised to, to, to know that there were other sins that were coming from this hard-heartedness because these internal qualities, they usually manifest themselves in other areas of sin. And that's what we see. Uh, verse two, goes, God goes on to list the outward sins of the people. He says, there's swearing, there's lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. That last part is probably a reference to the, uh, the recent transfers of power in the kings of the northern kingdom. They, for the most part, were not peaceful transfers of power. Uh, the reason that they went from one king to another was because the, first, the second king killed the first king. There's like five or six assassinations over and over and over again. He's saying there's bloodshed after bloodshed, which, which gives you a pretty clear picture of the culture. Uh, if people are killing each other, to grab power, then human life is, is meaningless. Uh, people are, are only interested, interested in themselves. They're willing to do whatever they want to do to get you know, what they want. But there's something else uh, that we should remember about this whole scene, sort of the culture of Israel at the time, um, and that is where they are. Do you remember where they are? What kind of land they are in? They're in the promised land. They're in the land of milk and honey. They're in the land of abundance and hope. But, but now the land of promise has become a land of despair. Uh, look at verse 3. It says, Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. Right? They're, they're decaying. They're withering morally in every way. And God is making clear the source of the despair is the people themselves. It's their sin. It's their their hardness of heart towards God. It's corrupted them internally, personally. It's affected their interactions with with the people in their lives to the point that the entire society has grown crooked and corrupt. So God is confronting them with this. He's saying, take a look. This is the reality of your culture and why it is the way that it is. And his point isn't just to assign blame. That's part of it. He's trying to tell the people, look, the fault is yours. But also, this is an important diagnosis of of human culture in general. It's something that's essential for for them to understand and for us to understand today. That without a heart for God, human beings, by that I mean individuals, families, society as a whole, we languish. We decay. This This is the first point. Without a heart for God, human beings fall apart. They get worse and worse and worse like a wound that's left untreated, right? Eventually the whole body becomes infected. And you can see this in every society. 
To the extent that culture departs from the knowledge of God, it twists and withers and decays. You can actually see it a number of times in the history of God's people, uh, for the Israelites. For example, the book of Judges, uh, it comes right after the book of Joshua. Joshua, a very strong leader, godly man, protege of Moses. He's the one who led his people into the promised land. He encouraged them to be faithful, to take courage in the Lord. He, could, he challenged them, looked, what do you believe? Live that way. But then he died. And once he died, the people turned away from the Lord. Uh, here's what we find in Judges 17.6. You see this uh, phrase mentioned over and over again. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what that meant was that everyone did evil. Everyone departed from the ways of God. Uh, the culture quickly deteriorated morally and spiritually. One of the lowest points is detailed in chapter 19 of Judges. Uh, it tells the story of a man traveling through Israel with his, with his concubine, uh, like the woman who's with him, and they find themselves in the town of Gibeah, and usually when you're traveling, uh, you would expect a hospitality. You, that, that's what you're supposed to do. You're to go and welcome in travelers, give them a meal, give them a place to stay. But so wretched was the culture at the time that the men of the town came and they wanted to abuse this man. And he, being so wretched, he gave them the concubine gave him the woman, and, and they abused her all night. They raped her, they, they violated her, they beat her to the point that she died. They murdered her, and he comes out in the morning, he doesn't even care. And when the people of Israel hear about this, they're shocked. Look, look at the response, Judges 19.30. Such a thing, they say, has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day, consider it, take counsel and speak. They're saying, we, we can't believe, in a sense, where our culture has come. From the time out of Egypt into the promised land, full of faith, full of righteousness, close with the Lord to now, when this is how we treat each other. Society decays without a heart for God. And it's not just in the Bible. We, we see the same decay in our own society. I mean, you can see it everywhere. Uh, but just think one example. Think of the recent civic elections. Right? What were some of the, the top items in terms of just our society? Uh, violence on the streets and, and drug overdoses. Right? Not, not just in Vancouver. It's a problem throughout our province. This is, this is the state of our, of our society. It's, things are not getting better. Another good metric to use is just talk to uh, teachers. If you talk to a teacher who's retiring, just ask them, your class 30 years ago when you started, compared to your class now, what do you think? Are things getting better or are things getting worse? I guarantee you the teachers will say, it doesn't seem like things are getting better. Respect for authority, moral decency, mental and emotional stability, it, it's getting worse and it's, it's no coincidence is my point that all of this has been happening as, as we've pushed farther and farther away, not just from biblical ideals, but from a real knowledge of God. Because this is the pattern that we see in the Bible for all of human history, right from the beginning. Right? God made everything very good, close relationship with the people he created. And as the human heart hardened towards God, turned away from God, corruption and despair followed. And we can see it in our cities, in our families, and in our own personal lives. This is the issue when it comes to whether a society languishes or flourishes. So this is the first point, that there's a connection there. 
Without a heart for God, humanity languishes. Uh, I have one objection, though, to this, and then one application. Uh, One objection, because I think that there would be many, perhaps, who would object to this, who would say, look, uh, look, Matt, I I hear what you're saying here, but I know people that have a heart that is completely against God, no faith in God at all, but they they aren't languishing. They seem actually to be doing pretty well. They seem to be flourishing on many ways that you would evaluate what a good life is. They're upstanding members of society, Okay, they, they seem satisfied and content. Um, their you know, jobs are consistent and stable. They're participating in you know, the community. They haven't ever set foot in a church. They don't want to set foot in a church. How do we explain that? That it seems like you can have a pretty good life without any heart for the Lord. Well, I would say two things. First, there is still a connection between living according to God's principles and, and a fairly good life. Meaning... If you work hard, if you treat people well, if you're self-controlled, loyal, honest, life will still go pretty well for you, even if you have no faith in God. But the second thing to understand is that even if you are living a a quote-unquote good life without God, eventually your hard heart towards him will lead to despair because life isn't measured in decades. It's measured in eons. And the real mark of a vibrant life isn't what it's like in the short term, it's what it's like in the long term. And the Bible makes really clear that there are very long-term consequences for sin, very long-term consequences from turning away from. Sometimes we see it immediately. We see lives beginning to fall apart, but sometimes it, it doesn't, we don't see it until much later. And we actually see a reference to this, this dynamic in our text. Uh, the verse is a little, little difficult, a little tricky. Verse 3 says, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Which seems odd. Why is he talking all of a sudden about animals and fish? But this is uh, an allusion to the judgment in the time of Noah. See, the time of Noah, uh, sinful humanity had uh, basically reached its, its breaking point. Uh, God looks at the earth and, and this is what he says. Uh, Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So he's seeing the thing that we're seeing here also in Hosea. That as people harden their heart towards the Lord, go and live the way they want to live, evil abounds, people are abused, injustice abounds. It's horrible. It's wickedness to the, the nth degree. And so God's response is to judge humanity justly judging humanity for all of its wickedness. And so he cleanses the world by ridding it of all of the human beings, but also all the animals except the fish because it was a flood, right? Fish live in water. Okay, so, <laughs> so but look at this. In our text, it's, it's, it alludes to a coming judgment that will be even more complete. Uh, when Jesus returns, the judgment will be more complete because it says here, even the fish of the sea will be taken away. So the idea is that this judgment will be more full, more final than the one in the time of Noah. So what it's saying here is that we, we may not see the full effects of abandoning God right now, but we will definitely see it later, which is why we need to be clear. We need to understand the connection between the attitude of our hearts and, and the state of humanity, whether it's going to flourish or whether it's going to fail. Now, the application is once we understand that that is the origin of the problems of society, 
that, that it's actually in each human heart. It it's actually clarifies how we can help. Because there's lots of people that want to help in society. Inside, outside the church. Lots of people that are working for the good of society and doing many good things. I mean, there's lots of, lots of social programs that are good. We need them. More affordable housing, that's a good thing. Drug prevention, education, addiction recovery, good things. Food banks, good things. Job training, skills training, lots of these things are very good and we as a church should be part of them. But we also need to be very clear that none of those things will ultimately solve any individual's problems or, the, or society's problems. Because they only treat the symptoms. They're not getting to the heart of the issue. That's always the challenge for everyone involved trying to write public policy, trying to get what is the heart of the issue. We as believers, we know the heart of the issue because we have the wisdom of God to kind of peel back the curtain and say, look, it, it begins in the human heart. A heart that is hard towards the Lord will be hard towards others and, and that individual life and the society they are part of will begin to, to disintegrate. Our only hope as individuals and a society is that our hearts can be changed. And that's the hope of the gospel of Jesus. Because the gospel of Jesus acknowledges the problem. It says, look, sin is the problem. That's why Jesus came. There's a problem that you can't solve. Right? You're not able to live the perfect life and honor God as you should. I'll do that for you. And then there's a judgment coming. And, and you can't endure that, but I don't want you to. I will endure that punishment for you. I'll go to the cross. I'll endure the consequences of sin. I'll take all of it upon my own shoulders, die the death that you deserve, and then be raised from the dead. And as you hope in me, you will have that hope as well. But notice, the essence of that hope is actually a changed heart. That we are brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. And from that, restoration is possible. Renewal is possible. So it's not just in becoming a Christian that you have eternal hope for the future. We have that, praise God. But actually, the hope and renewal begins now. It can actually have an effect. It will have an effect on our lives and on society around us. Because we want, we want society to flourish. We want things to get better. So we shouldn't stop engaging in culture, right? If we're involved in our our PAC committee, trying to influence our school in our society, if we have abilities to write legislation, that's great. We should do that as a church. But we should also be very clear on what it actually means to be the church, which is to bring the hope of the gospel, to do the thing that Jesus said that we should do, to tell everyone about him, to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So for us personally, to take this and apply it, uh, I think we should think on a smaller scale. I mean, it is good to see big picture that this impacts society. But really the question is, do we know someone who is, who is languishing in some way? Do we know someone who is struggling? Uh, do they know the Lord? Is there an opportunity for us to care for them practically, but also to speak the words of hope of the gospel into their lives? And for us as individuals, if, if we are languishing, like if we just know right now it's a struggle, we feel like you're in a bit of a rut. We feel like we just, whatever it may be. May this truth convict us and remind us of where hope lies. Without a heart for God, human beings do languish. But with God, we flourish and we grow. And we want that for us and for the people around us. That's the first point. The second is this. When leaders fail, we all suffer. So there's kind of a shift here now in our text and it all uh, shifts in verse 4. Verse 4 is, is also a bit of a strange verse. Let's look at it just by itself. 
Verse 4, God says this, let no one contend and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. It's a little tricky because it's tough to know, like, who is God, at first, who is God speaking to and what exactly does he mean? It seems like he's speaking to the priests, but we didn't know that they were saying anything to him. So the best way to understand this, from looking at the commentaries, is to imagine the scene. Hosea is there, speaking to the people. He's rebuking them. He's really laying into them. Imagine that the priests are nearby. These are the religious leaders. And imagine that they are kind of off to the side, and they're doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you, you tell them, Hosea. Yeah. Yeah, you people, you're the worst. Okay? You tell them. We told them, Hosea. They're, it's all your fault. It's all your problem. They're, what are they doing? They're contending along with Hosea, along with God, accusing the people along with God. And at a certain point, Hosea turns, inspired by the Spirit of God, and says, hang on, priest. I don't need your help. Okay? Let no one contend. Don't accuse with me. Actually, you're the problem. And so now they've poked the bear, in a sense, and now the focus is all on the leaders because there's a lot of trouble there. So verses 5 to 9 are all about uh, what the leaders have done and have not done. So let's read that, and then we'll get into it. Verse 5, God speaking to the, to the priests of the day. He says, you shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. So a little context. The priests were established by God through the tribe of Levi. When God set up the whole sacrificial system and the tabernacle, he said, look, you, you Levites, you are going to be the priests. Uh, which is instrumental. That was, they facilitated the worship of God, the whole uh, atonement for sin. They were central to that. So when the kingdom split, if you remember, there was a, a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. Uh, the problem for the northern kingdom is that the Levites, the tribe of Levi, they were in the south, which should have been a sign that this was a bad idea, separating the kingdoms, because how, how could they worship God? They, they should have repented, come back together, reunified the kingdom, but instead... Instead, their evil king, Jeroboam, he just made some new priests. First uh, Kings 13, 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests of the high places again from among all the people. Any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. So the high places were the false places of worship. They worshiped Baal and all this kind of thing. And Jeroboam, he's like, we need some priests. Uh, who, who wants to be a priest? Anyone? You, you want to be? Okay, put up your hand. Okay, you can be a priest and you and you. He just appointed them just on his own, which meant that their identity as priests was illegitimate. And so we should not be surprised that then the way that they practiced the priesthood was also just as bad. Instead of remembering God's law and leading people to know God more, they, they forgot God's law. They, they did the opposite. Hosea mentions three key things that they, are, that they are not doing. Number one, they rejected God's law. We see this in verse six. You've rejected knowledge. You've forgotten the law of your God. How can they possibly lead people spiritually if they are forgetting the law of God? Uh, the second thing, they were filled with pride. Uh, verse seven, the more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. The idea there of increase is they were getting puffed up. You know, it was a position of influence in the culture. Uh, power to be a priest, 
And so they were, they were getting puffed up with pride because of that role. The glory that they were having, they should have been giving all honor and glory to God, but they, it's like they were stealing some of it for themselves. And God says, I'm going to take that glory and turn it into shame. He's condemning them for that. Thirdly, they were greedy. Verse 8, they feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. Uh, the feeding here was literal. The priests actually got their food uh, from a portion of whatever animals were given for sacrifice. So uh, what these priests were realizing is that the more people sinned, the more people came with sacrifices, more animals, and the more food they got. So instead of pushing back on the people, challenging them in their sin to pursue holiness, they would just be happy with more and more food, more and more meat. So as leaders, they were focused on what they got out of it, which is the opposite of what true leadership is. The result of all of this is that the people were slowly drawn deeper and deeper into sin. They were farther and farther away from God. As it says here in the text, they were destroyed by the lack of spiritual leadership and moral compromised from the priests themselves. So what we're seeing here is that people always suffer when leaders fail. Uh, we see it here in the time of Israel, but it's true in all situations, even, even today. Uh, one example, I think a clear example, is, is everything that's going on with Hockey Canada. Here was a leadership team that did not do what they should have done. There were, there were allegations, multiple instances of sexual abuse over the years, and they, they did not step up and do the right thing. And so the result now is that people are suffering. Victims haven't received the justice that they should get. Uh, the people who perpetrated the crimes weren't dealt with properly. And now young people who just want to play hockey, the, the whole system is falling apart. The sponsors are pulling out. That's what happens. When leaders fail, people suffer. But when church leaders fail, it's even more serious because the stakes are higher. Uh, the, the very mission of the church is often stalled when there's problems with leadership. Souls are put into jeopardy because people who've been led, discipled by someone, when that person fails, they, they might question their own faith. And the very testimony of Jesus is tarnished in the eyes of the world because people are looking at this church leader who says he follows Jesus and everything's falling apart. We aren't just talking here about catastrophic moral failures. I mean, that is devastating. And sadly, there's been a number of those over the last few years of Christian leaders. But, but just as devastating are pastors and elders who lead churches that don't fully teach the word of God. I think that's specifically what's being talked about here because the language used is that these priests rejected the knowledge of God. They forgot God's law. And there are ministries like that, Christian ministries, supposedly Christian ministries, where uh, it feels good, it looks good, but the Bible isn't really opened and, and the word isn't really taught faithfully and accurately. And the result is that the people are slowly destroyed. Uh, that's what verse 6 says. God says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So how does that happen? Why is it that the people would be destroyed for lack of knowledge? Well, it's, it's because the only way to faithfully navigate life as a believer is to have a, a proper theological understanding of who we are as human beings and who God is. Um, unless we're sure about those two things, uh, we will be, we will fall apart. Our faith will, when it's tested, will we'll fail. So a couple of examples. If we aren't, if we don't know what the Bible says about the lows of human experience, like suffering, injustice, illness, depression, all of these very low times in life, if we don't understand 
that the Bible says that even in those times, God is at work. That, that even those, those difficult times, God can use it for good. That God will, will answer all injustice. That, that there, are, there is a hopeful end to the, to the difficulties in our lives. That we can have hope in the midst of trials. If we don't know the theology that helps us to understand the, the low times in our life, when they happen, our faith is going to fall apart. We're going to be destroyed in a sense because we don't have the foundation we need. Same thing with the highs of human existence. Prosperity, success, victory, wealth, and pleasure. If we don't understand them from a biblical point of view, the warnings that come along with them, right? The fact they are, many of them, blessings of God, yes, but that the, the danger is there that we're gonna begin to live for those things, that we're gonna get our hearts wrapped up in those things, in things like money and, and accolades, whatever it may be. If we don't understand the danger there, then also when our faith is tested, we're gonna be swept up in idolatry. We're gonna be destroyed. If we don't know the fullness of God's character, like his meticulous sovereignty, that he is, he is in control of every single event in the universe, of our lives, every atom, every molecule. If we don't know his, his wrath towards sin, his abundant grace in the cross, how can we continue to worship him when things are difficult? We, we will constantly be having difficulty reconciling the, the reality of our lives with the character of God that we thought he was good and loving, and yet how do we... How do we navigate this, this life that we are to live? If church leaders don't teach us sound doctrine, we will be destroyed by the temptations and the trials of life, which is exactly why God gave us church leaders in the first place. Uh, in the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing again to the Ephesian church, and he makes this dynamic very, very clear. Ephesians 4.11, Paul writes, And he, that's God, and God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, why? To equip the saints, that's the church, to equip the church for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? Why, why should we, we be equipped in this way? So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro, uh, by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. This is what was happening to the Israelites. Instead of being equipped and strengthened by the priests, they were weakened. So when temptation came, when, when other you know, people who worshipped Baal came and said, hey, look, you should come and, and worship Baal. It's, it's great. It feels good. Uh, it, it, it works. Come on. And they were not equipped to know how to resist that. So they were carried away. Their faith fell to pieces. They engaged in more and more sin. Which is why God's language against the priests is so strong. Look at verse 9. He says, I will punish them for their ways. I will repay them for their deeds. God makes very clear. He, he is holding the leaders to account. To the priests who are there pretending to, to contend. Yeah, you tell them, Hosea. Yeah, this is what we said. He's saying, you didn't, you didn't do this at all. That all of this is, is upon your shoulders. So how should we respond to this as a church? Understanding this dynamic of the, the importance of, of leadership. I think there's three things that, three ways we should respond. Number one, uh, we should insist on sound biblical teaching. You should expect it. You should expect it of me. You should expect it of whoever fills this pulpit. You should expect it of those who are, who are teaching in any local church. 
the measure of whether, you know, it's been good teaching is not, is not necessarily how we feel. Because we could come away feeling really bent out of shape because we've been pushed in a certain way or feel convicted in a certain way. But the key is that we go away being able to see in the word why the person speaking said the things they did. Because then when we go away, if we're wrestling, we're wrestling with God. We're wrestling with what the word said. We're not, we're not bent out of shape because they said it in that way and questioning them. We're like, I, I see it. This is what God is saying to me. Now it's up to me to, to deal with it. That's, that's what we should expect. That's what's life-giving for the church. So we should insist on this. Now, a couple of things about how we insist on this. Uh, I, would, I, would, I would say should we, we could please be gracious about this. Uh, if you notice something that, you, that seems off, right? Maybe, maybe it's in a sermon. Maybe it's in a lesson somewhere. Maybe it's a community group. Uh, there's a big difference between, you know, sending an email to that person and saying, hey, we need to talk about your heresy from Sunday, right? That, that's pretty confrontational, right? That, that's tough. There's a lot of conflict that could come. Uh, how much better is it to come in graciously say, hey, could we talk? I, I may have misunderstood you here. Like the way you said this, I'm not sure. What exactly did you mean by this? And, and then have a conversation about it. Graciously uh, kind of entering into a conversation about what, what this passage of scripture says. That's, that's a much better way to do it. Preserves the unity of the church. If there is something wrong, then, then that needs to be addressed. But let's be gracious as we enter into those conversations. Uh, let's also please be patient. Uh, our goal as a church is to raise up young leaders, new leaders, new teachers. And so that means there are going to be people sometimes teaching you who are new, who are, who are young in their, their career as, or their, whatever God's called them to. We want that as a church. We want to raise up new leaders so they can lead more community groups, more Bible studies, maybe plant other churches. And so there are going to be times when there's someone who is inexperienced but growing. We need to be patient with that as well. And lastly, uh, we need to just be receptive I think the best way to encourage strong biblical teaching and solid leadership is just, just to receive it with humility and actually submit to it, to, to live in light of it. That's how a, a church grows in strength, that we all are just committed to this. No, we, we want to hear what God has to say. Even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, we want to wrestle with it together and we will collectively submit to the authority, not of the person speaking, but of the word of God. So that's the first thing. Every local church, every church membership should insist on sound biblical teaching. Uh, secondly, though, we need to take responsibility for our own knowledge. Uh, verse 9 is interesting. God says, and it shall be like people, like priest. So uh, what it's saying here is the people were punished. They were held to account because they followed the priests into sin. Uh, what God is saying here is that, yes, the, the priests, I mean, Elsewhere, it says the leaders will be judged more strictly. And God is clearly having out the priests. They're the ones in charge. But he's still holding the people to account. They should have known better. They should have been faithful even in the midst of corrupt leadership. And the same is true for us. Uh, it's not enough for us just to blame the church or blame our parents or blame our youth leaders because of our lack of spiritual growth. Ultimately, it's up to us. And, and, and the good news is we actually, we have everything that we need, each one of us, in the word of God, in the spirit of God, in Jesus himself. So, so we hope to be a part of a, of a church that's strong and we're being taught well, but even if we're not, we, we can be faithful. Third thing uh, is, is just that we need to pray for our leaders. Okay, I, I would 
I know many of you pray for us as an elder team, as a staff team. I really appreciate that and would just invite more of it. Uh, please continue to pray for our humility. Uh, pray for our, our pursuing holiness and steadfastness. Uh, our goal is to have a real stability of leadership, uh, a continued sense of, of leadership. We, we don't want to be one of those churches that is stalled with, with conflict, with drama, with moral failings. And so we need your prayers. Uh, we really need the grace of God upon our lives to, to persevere in that. But really, this is the same for all of us, right? We all, we all want this for ourselves. We should want this, this steadfastness, this faithfulness. And we need God's mercy for it to come to pass. What this text is telling us is that it really comes down to our hearts, right? The hearts of the people, the hearts of the leaders. And, and that means uh, that we, we really should be pressing into the power of God, because he's the only one who can change our hearts. He's the only one that can bring about a sense of, of growth, of affection for the Lord, of conviction about sin. So I'm going to end just by praying for that for us, that, that we would want that heart and pursue that kind of a heart, and that then we would flourish in the way God wants for us. So let's pray together. Lord God, I do, I do pray for us in this way. Lord, it's so difficult for us to see uh, the reality of our sin, the depth of our sin. Lord, by its nature, it blinds us. We, we think we're doing well. And yet the truth of the matter is that there's so many areas where we, we end up having a hard heart towards you or we're inattentive uh, to the voice of your spirit or we're, we're just not spending the time in the word or in prayer the way that we, we should be. And, and so we become deaf, we become blind. And so I pray, please, that you would uh, grow in us a passion for you, that, that our hearts would be stirred up to worship you fully and, and to, to want the pushback, to want the hard words that you have here in, in the text of scripture for us. And so I pray, God, for us as a people, I do pray for us as a leadership team, Lord, that by your grace, by your power, we would remain faithful. And I pray for our community. Lord, we, we, we see in scripture clearly what the issue is, and yet often we're reluctant to share these things. And so I pray you'd help us to be courageous, help us to be faithful and loving, to certainly do the good works, the practical helps that people need, but also to look for opportunities uh, to help those people who are struggling by speaking a word of hope, a word of, of gospel truth. And so I pray for your blessing on us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.